Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome back to the Pillars Podcast. So glad you're here. Of course, I am Dylan Bowman, and today I'm very happy to have you join us for an incredible chat with a returning guest. That's right. Today, the amazing Stephanie Case returns to the program to educate and inspire us all for a second time. If you don't know who Stephanie is or you missed her first appearance on the show, she is an awesome ultra runner who has accomplished incredible things over the course of her career. But more importantly, and perhaps more impressively, she is also a human rights lawyer for the UN who often travels and works to help people in war zones around the world. Uh, We talk about both of those things in this episode. In fact, you can kind of think of it as a two-parter. Both her athletic life and her professional life are covered in great detail in the first half of the show, we go deep on the recent events unfolding in Afghanistan, where Stephanie has been working for a long time. She started a nonprofit in the country back in 2014 called Free to Run, whose mission is to empower women and girls through sports. And because she has a long history of advocacy work in the country, I wanted to have her on to help me and to help us together understand what is actually happening on the ground in Afghanistan, what the situation was like as the Taliban reasserted control over the country and what we, the running community, can do to help our fellow runners, our brothers and sisters currently battling for their freedom and for their ability to even enjoy the simple act of running that we all take for granted every single day. It is pretty powerful stuff. And once we traverse that somewhat intense subject matter, we transition to talk all about Stephanie's recent finish at the 450 kilometer Tour de Glacier, which is pretty much at least sounds like the hardest race in the world. And for those who are familiar with Tour de Jeans, it is pretty much that, but longer, harder, and unmarked. So it is a true monster of a course in the Aosta Valley of the Italian Alps. And incredibly, as Stephanie was dealing with the emotional stress and the tragedy unfolding in Afghanistan, she was able to finish third place overall, of course, third female in this ridiculously hard race, deeply inspiring all of us who know her and admire her resilience. And if you didn't listen to Stephanie's first appearance on the show, it is certainly not required for this episode. But if you enjoy this conversation and want to get to know Stephanie a little bit better, go back in the archives and listen to episode number 46, where we go a bit deeper on her life, her work, and her running career. For now, it is my pleasure to welcome the amazing Stephanie Case back for round two. I hope you all enjoy. Stephanie Case, how are you? Welcome back to the podcast. It's so nice to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you. Better better than the last time I saw you in Sham. <laughs> That's right. And we're going to get to that in a second. We're going to get to that in a second because it was a 
a touching and also upsetting and sad interaction, <laughs> but also, you know, you are a special person and, uh, you know, it's a privilege for me to be able to hang out with you just briefly there in Chamonix as well, before you embarked on an incredible mission yourself. And while you were dealing with some very intense stuff, but Stephanie, of course, this is your second appearance on the podcast. So just reminding our listeners to go back and listen to that first episode with you so they can have a little bit more of an intro into your story. And this time we're going to go a little bit deeper on a couple of things. Number one, your incredible run at the Tour de Glacier <laughs> just a few weeks ago, 450K as part of the Tour de Jantz event in the Aosta Valley of Italy. And also on a slightly sadder subject, what's going on in Afghanistan, how, how, how we can help and just generally help us to understand the circumstances what's going on so that we can be a little bit more educated as to the dynamic of the world at the moment. But you're broadcasting from a hotel in New York. What are you doing in New York? I am. Well, believe it or not, this is where I'm supposed to be based. My job is here, but I've been working remotely um, in Sham and I've been able to extend that up until Tour de Glacier. And once the race was over, I had to come over. I'm going to take off my blazer so I don't look so formal. Yeah. <laughs> there we yeah. go. Now the I'm the work day is over. It's 5 p.m. <laughs> Eastern Standard Time. So remind the listeners, just so you know, we set some context, what you do for a living. You've mentioned your job. So mention what you do for a living while you're in New York. Sure. So I work for the United Nations. Right now, I'm a human rights analyst in our UN Operations and Crisis Center, uh, which is a 24-7 shop. And prior to that, I was the head of protection of civilians and child protection in the uh, UN assistance mission in Afghanistan. So basically, I'm a lawyer and I specialize in conflict and crisis. <laughs> a human rights lawyer. And uh, we talked all about that in the first podcast. And we're going to get to how your uh, work is then recently disrupted and made uh, very challenging with the current geopolitical situation uh, mm. in Afghanistan specifically, where you have a lot of connections and where you do a lot of great things. And I guess we should talk about our interaction in Chamonix uh, <laughs> just a few weeks ago. Of course, I was there around the UTMB week and we had sort of a North Face get together event. You and I are both uh, supported by the North Face and there was a little sort of happy hour event at one of the bars in town. And Stephanie Case comes walking up to the bar and I was standing there on the patio. We made eye contact. And of course I walked over to you and we had a big hug and you immediately burst into tears. So who doesn't want a crying girl in a bar? <laughs> so, and of course, this is right at the um, apex of the situation that was unfolding in Afghanistan. So I guess, uh, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to my characterization of our interaction, but uh, talk a little bit about what was going on at that time in the UTMB week and, and uh, yeah, what you were carrying around the village with you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a compliment, but <laughs> you were the person that I picked to, to burst into tears in front of. So <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah. I mean, normally UTMB week in Chamonix is just the best time. There's, you know, everyone is there. There's so much going on. 
And I had completely sheltered myself from everything that was happening on the outside because I was in the middle of coordinating evacuations of um, Afghans who were associated with the NGO that I founded in Afghanistan seven years ago, free to run. Um, but I decided I was going to air myself out and um, try to practice interacting with humans. And I thought I'd be able to keep it together for an hour <laughs> amongst friendly North Face folk. And, uh, you know, the look on your face <laughs> when you saw me, <laughs> there was no hiding um, how I was feeling and, and what I was going through at that at that time. And luckily, I just felt comfortable enough to to start crying and <laughs> just share a little bit about, about what I was experiencing that week and, and to have an, an hour break from, from what I was going through, um, was helpful. Um, but I had, I think I was still responding to calls and, and emails in, in the middle of that one hour. <laughs> you were, you were clearly carrying some emotional baggage. It was, uh, yeah. you were carrying uh, a feeling of responsibility, I think for, the people who you know and care about in Afghanistan, particularly the women who you have mentored and nurtured to become athletes themselves. And it's such an incredible thing that you do. And I honestly was honored that you were able to open up with me and uh, that we were able to have a pretty deep and special interaction there on the streets of Chamonix outside of a bar. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you certainly, no place. <laughs> you certainly made me feel quite emotional as well. And before we kind of get into specifically the challenges of what you're dealing with, maybe you could give an overarching idea or just a characterization of what happened on the ground in Afghanistan and what led to this chaos. Sure. So basically in the, in the months, um, leading up to August, we've seen a deterioration of the, of the situation in Afghanistan. Um, peace talks had basically failed between the government of Afghanistan and the Taliban. Um, and you know, every week we would get the news of more and more districts being taken over by the Taliban, more and more areas coming under or Taliban control. And so the government was maintaining control of provincial capitals, but all of the space around, you know, these centers were being taken over by the Taliban. And in many cases, without even a fight. And, you know, free to run, we had organized an expedition in the walk-on corridor, actually with North Face funding. Um, to and this is in the in the northeast of the country to do this amazing expedition with female leaders from across the country. This was supposed to happen at the end of July, and you know we'd be up over four thousand meters hiking and trekking in some of the most remote areas of the world. And then at the beginning of July, Badakhshan, which is the province that the Wakhan Corridor is in, became basically the first full province to fall to the Taliban. Basically, in thirty six hours. It went from just a few districts being controlled by the Taliban to almost all of them. Mm -hmm. And it was shocking. And that was really the first time when I thought, fuck, like, this, yeah. so this is were really you, going in a bad direction. Were you there at the time? I know you made a visit to Afghanistan in July. Yeah, I wasn't there at the time. I was preparing to go in. So I already had my visa. And when that happened, I thought, okay, this this is really serious. I mean, we knew it was going in a bad direction, but it might sound strange to people who haven't worked in Afghanistan, but something is always on fire in the country. Things mm -hmm. are always 
the worst that it's ever been. And, and then it gets a little bit better and then it's the worst that it's ever been. So it's hard to know when something is a real emergency where you need to not panic, but um, really start to mobilize versus just another one of those mini emergencies. Mm-hmm. But when Badakhshan fall, fell, I I knew I needed to get in to the country. Um, the the staff, the Afghan staff we had in in Free to Run, had you know raised concerns about the fact that we had documents with lists of participants who were involved in our program and that, you know, what do we do with these documents? If the Taliban takes over, the Taliban is coming closer to, you know, my home or even the Taliban are so close to my home that my whole family has had to leave and move to Kabul. Mm -hmm. And at that point we had no international staff in the country. Um, And I really felt strongly that I needed to go back in to show a bit of solidarity with our team. And, you know, while everyone was leaving, I felt it sent the wrong message. I needed to go back in Mm -hmm. to say, you know, you guys are important. Uh, My life wasn't more at risk. Their lives were, but as an international, the level of violence, level of suicide attacks that could potentially affect me weren't nearly as bad as they'd been maybe a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. Targeted assassinations against Afghans were higher. But for me, you know, there was no, I didn't feel there was any additional risk for me going in. And so I already luckily had that visa and and I went back into the country a couple weeks before I was supposed to go in for the walk-on corridor so that I could talk to our team, talk to participants and find out like, hey, what's going on? What is your situation? Have you had to leave your homes? You know, what do things look like? Are you allowed to go outside right now? And so many of the women in our program just expressed fear, fear mm-hmm. of the unknown. You know, the Taliban are coming closer. What's going to happen? My dad is worried about um, about my safety. So he doesn't want me going outside anymore. I miss running. I miss my friends. I miss, you know, going in the mountains. And, you know, what was so clear to me was one, and it was a tough thing to realize, but Our whole program, Free to Run, is about helping women and girls to reclaim public space and to promote community change through outdoor activity and running. So this is about visibility. This is about leadership, women's empowerment, and working for a foreign organization. And everything that I had helped to set up that had helped to produce positive change was now the thing that was putting them at risk. So that was the thing that... When they were going to exercise in public because of the yep. fact that the Taliban was sort of reasserting their authority, the women who had been feeling safe exercising as part of your organization were easily identified and potentially punished as exactly. a result. So basically the our staff members in particular who were known in the communities for leading groups of women on outdoor activities for um you know, education on <laughs> things like conflict resolution, assertiveness, leadership, you know, they, they were known, they were identifiable. Mm. And, you know, that was, it's still such a hard thing for me to wrap my, my brain around. And so I knew that I had a responsibility to address the fears that they were feeling. But the second thing that, you know, really came out to me from the discussions was, you know, how important running and being able to go outside was for them. 
And so we had a lot of conversations. At that point, we didn't know that there were only a few weeks left until the Taliban took over the whole country. At that point, you know, we still heard, okay, there's fighting, the Taliban are close by, but, you know, maybe there'll be a chance that we can still do some outdoor activities. I still heard this desire to, despite the risks, to try to keep doing some kind of of programming. So at that point, we were still thinking, okay, you know, this is going to be hard, but it's not going to be impossible. We need to find a way to keep everyone safe, but also to address the their needs and desires and, you know, to be able to help them live the kind of life that, that they were used to living. But, you know, the logistical challenges were huge. You know, we had to organize getting all of our documents. We were in five different provinces across the country, including in the South, which is a Taliban stronghold. Mm. So we had to find ways to get all of our documents with participant names, you know, names of our vendors, our contractors, to get those all to Kabul and then to sort out which ones we had to destroy and which ones we needed to keep for, for security purposes, purposes and everything. Yeah. Wow. And identify which ones we needed to take out of the country and which ones would be buried or burned if necessary. In event of a crisis, in which order to I protect didn't think would happen, in order yeah. to protect yourselves and the women who are part of the organization, exactly. That's and amazing. Then just Stephanie. a couple of weeks later, there we are burning fires, and because we didn't, we couldn't burn, we couldn't burn all of the documents that we'd left behind because it would attract attention from the neighbors who would wonder why are they yeah. having such a big bonfire. We had to bury the rest and and pour concrete over them like like the mafia. This is like I mean, yeah, it's like it's, it's like it's out of a movie, right? And thank God for people like you, Stephanie. Honestly, you're an absolute hero. I mean, we're just starting our conversation, and I already want to give you a big hug. But no. I mean, your characterization of hearing that everything was deteriorating in a dangerous way. And instead of having the instinct of, hell no, I'm not going back in there, you ran into the burning building and felt the need to go back at that moment. It's an incredibly admirable thing. Well, honestly, I'm, I'm so mad at myself that I left because when the evacuations started happening, I, <laughs> I tried to get back in. <laughs> I mean, yeah. this was a case where you know, there were no commercial flights. I had, I'm not going to say which country, but I had some internal communications sent within the military forces of a certain country to try to get on in a military plane to get back in. Um, you know, I, I had an Afghan SIM card. I, um, I had a visa that I'd already used, but fine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can sleep in, in weird places and I don't need a lot of water. And I was like, I am perfect to go back in and support the evacuations. Cause as it turned out, what we really needed was a contact point on the ground at the airport. So without sounding too ignorant and to be honest, I I am ignorant of this whole thing. And I feel somewhat silly based on my ignorance asking certain questions, but I think it's important for, I think it's important for context. Of course, we're talking about evacuations and stuff. You mentioned earlier that talks had broken down between the Afghan government and the Taliban. Where does the U.S. government factor into all this? Because the news that we were receiving, like the only thing that I really knew was that the U.S. military basically cut and run without enough advance warning. Can you just provide your professional 
uh, assessment of, of what happened leading up to this point that you're describing so far? Yeah. And I just will make it very clear. I'm speaking as myself, not yes. as the UN. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Caveat. Yes. Um, so basically the main talks up until the end of February, 2020 were between the U.S. <laughs> And the Taliban. And the the Taliban's goal was to get the U.S. out. And they refused to talk to the Afghan government until the U.S. were out. So they made an agreement on um, February 29th, leap year, 2020. And there were certain things in that agreement that were public and certain things that weren't. But basically, the U.S. said, "Okay, you know, we will leave. Um, We'll stop attacking you. We will, um, you know, defend the... um, Afghan government in certain circumstances, but basically now it's up to to you guys. So after that point, they were focused on withdrawing from the country, but they were still there in support of of the Afghan government, the Afghan National Security Forces. But basically, there was no incentive (laughs) in 2020 really for the Taliban to come to the table anymore. They were doing quite well on the battlefield. And then at some point, the US government named a specific date by which they were going to leave. And that really took out a lot of leverage, I think, in the in the peace talks. Because they had, um, they had basically announced when they're gonna leave, so therefore the Taliban could basically wait, wait it out so they didn't have as much negotiation power. Yeah. I mean, no one, I think everyone agrees that the U.S. couldn't stay forever, Mm -hmm. but it was just the way that they left um, that really caused a lot of problems. And there's, this will be analyzed in in the years to come. And I'm certainly not, you know, the the right person necessarily to to speculate on it. But Mm -hmm. what really happened is that everyone, including the media, was talking about how fragile the Afghan government was and that the Afghan National Security Forces wouldn't be able to survive without the U.S. government. And it basically became a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, you know, the Taliban would come in to a district with very few fighters in some cases, and the Afghan National Security Forces had, you know, believed this rhetoric that, like, they weren't actually strong enough and so they were walking away from their posts in some cases mm-hmm. without, you know, without any fight. Um, and there were other factors certainly that that played into it, but it really became this um, domino effect that ended up becoming what everyone feared way more quickly than than anyone feared. Yeah. And then on top of that, the U.S. government announced this, you know, special immigrant um visa program for Afghan interpreters and anyone who had helped the U.S. military to be able to come to the States. And so in some way, people saw this as like, oh, the U.S. also realized that the country is going to go to shit and people are going to be in danger and they're taking anyone out connected to them. So we are going to go to shit. <laughs> and uh... and that's that's kind of how this thing spiraled. I think it could have been avoided, but... Um, yeah, it was getting into more political. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And of course, yeah, it's not, it's not up to, to you to necessarily cast judgment one way or yeah. the other. Certainly I'm not educated and enough to do so, but it did seem like it took everybody by surprise, just how quick things went from 
being under control of the Afghan government with the support yeah. of the U.S. government. Hey, the Taliban itself, they, were, they weren't expecting really? to walk. Yeah, yeah wow. they said that publicly. You know, we weren't prepared <laughs> to take over the country yet. Wow. And so they were even taken by surprise about how how easy it was in, in many ways. So, you know, it just all of a sudden we were left with this situation where you know, I saw the last three major cities in one weekend all fell to the Taliban. And and that's when we saw that horrible footage of, you know, Afghans clinging to, you know, U.S. military planes, planes to, to try to get out of the country. And, and that's when, you know, we had to spring into action. We had luckily started looking for evacuation options when I was in Kabul the month before. But this was now... Um, a much more immediate and dire situation. Incredible. Yeah. And so disturbing and sad, some of those images. So yeah. I wanted to share with you a very interesting and timely anecdote from my recent trip to California this past weekend. And it's serendipitous timing because of our conversation, which we had scheduled a couple of weeks ago today. And effectively what happened was I flew into San Francisco and caught a ride. I hit, you know, I ordered an Uber uh, from the airport into the city so that I could catch a ride up to the Tahoe area where I was doing a broadcast for the Broken Arrow Sky Race this weekend. And as I do, I got into a nice, long, friendly conversation with my Uber driver. And he was like, oh, are you, uh, are you coming back home? And I said, no, I used to live here, miss it so much. And, but now I live in, in Portland and, you know, then sort of got into his life story. And he quickly told me that he was from Afghanistan. And so, of course, you know, we start talking about all this stuff. And I'm interested to hear you explain this because he effectively told me that he was in the country at this time to get married. He was there for mm. his wedding ceremony when all this shit was going down and that he had received a message saying, you have 15 days to get out of the country. And I think it was with the help, with the assistance of the government. So tell, talk a little bit about that. Cause you're, you're sort of mentioned earlier that they were sort of preparing certain individuals who were going to have the opportunity to leave, how did they identify those individuals? And maybe if there's any sort of clarity you can provide as to what it was like on the ground at that point, when people were starting to understand that they either needed to leave or they were going to be living under the, the Taliban's control. Yeah. I think um, the Afghans knew. <laughs> Well before um, I think the rest of us were willing to believe it that that this was going to go um, this wasn't going to go well <laughs> and and I think um, there's a lot of um, reckoning we have to do but you know especially in in July um, a lot of my Afghan friends um, those in Free to Run. Um, those in the UN, those in, in other organizations were really looking at, at any ways to get out. And at that point, um, many were just trying to get out on their own, but you could see 
the plate, the very few countries that would offer tourist visas to Afghans were really starting to shut that down in, in July um, in anticipation of, of massive outflows. And um, at, at the start, the U.S. government was really only providing an avenue for those who had, you know, assisted the, the military to be able to get out as an NGO with U.S. funds. Um, who employed Afghans, we didn't yet have an avenue until they announced it, an additional program where um, those who worked for um, U.S.-based NGOs with government funding um, would be able to get access to um, a particular priority refugee program. However, so, so, at that point, they sorry. needed to find their own way out of the country. Yeah. So... If I'm understanding this right, this individual, this very friendly Uber driver was likely either working as an interpreter or something for the U.S. government, or he was involved in some sort of... Or if he was a U.S. citizen and just traveled back to get married. No? Yeah. No, I don't think he's a U.S. citizen. Okay. I'm just trying... Yeah, I I don't know. I thought it was... uh, I just can't imagine receiving a text saying you have 15 yeah. days to get your affairs in order to leave the country. He would have already had to have been in some kind of visa pool yeah, or had to have some kind of status in, you know, outside of the country in order to, to receive that. Mm-hmm. Um, because the process, if you started that process in, in July, um, you'd likely still be in that in that process. It's, Mm. it's quite cumbersome. Um, but for example, like any, um, when I was in Kabul in, um, in July, I mean, it was against all, um, foreign government advice and the French sent in a special plane to pick up any French citizens who were in the Uh, country to leave at that point. mm. So if he had, you know, any kind of a green card or anything for the U S already, um, then he probably would have been notified by the government to, to leave. Um, but yeah, it was, um, it, it wasn't until later in the process that employees of, of us based NGOs could get access to this refugee program with the caveat that they had to find their own way out of the country, which basically renders it ineffective. It renders it useless. And so, you know, we were in this process where, you know, for about two weeks after um, the country was taken over and people were trying to evacuate and the airport was in chaos of trying to find options to get particularly our our at-risk employees out of the country. And, I have to say it was a failure on the part of so many governments with so many responsibilities and, you know, promises were made and assurances were given about evacuating certain people that never came through. And it was probably after the first week when I realized that no one was gonna help us get our team out. No government that we were connected to, no matter how much they'd invested in us or how much they had helped to create the conditions that put them at risk, just like I had with Free to Run, that the safety and security and the lives of my own team were gonna come down to me and my executive director, Taylor. 
and what we could put together from finding buses and bus drivers who could take people to the airport to being on the phones with my team members for like when they'd be at checkpoints trying to get past the Taliban for 20 hours in some cases, Mm. then advising them whether they should go to the airport and which gate. There were a number of different gates at the airport and different international forces were controlling different ones to then making contact with different international forces. I mean, this ultimately culminated in me coordinating operations with special forces from other countries to try to get buses through crowds, past Afghan national security forces who were shooting into an airport, past the U.S., onto a charter plane that we had to find. I mean, it, it was absolutely insane all the while security threats going on all around the airport i mean it was it was a i want to say 24 7 but i did sleep it was like a 21 7 (laughs) what a great way to spend utmb week wasn't it yeah Yeah. so (laughs) stephanie your organization is focused on women and girls in afghanistan and i want to give you an opportunity and Iraq. Uh, and I want to give you an opportunity to, to talk about how this impacts women and girls specifically, because in my interaction with my Uber driver, I also said, so what is it like on the ground in Afghanistan right now? And he said that everything had basically been closed and they had very recently opened up schools again for the first time, but only for boys. For boys. Only for boys. So talk about how this situation is impacting women specifically? Yeah, it's actually much worse than I feared. Um, I think because I have to be an optimist in in the line of work that I do, I did, I fell into that camp where like, this isn't going to be the same Taliban as 20 years ago. This is going to be different. You know, the UN's had a dialogue with them. The international community's had a dialogue with them. They're different. And... You know, I don't want to make any pronouncements, but we are watching and seeing how uh, how they are governing and how this new administration is dealing with women and girls' rights. And just like you said, schools are reopened for boys, not for girls. Women are allowed to work in the health sector because the Taliban don't want women going to male doctors. But women, in terms of going back to the workforce, not happening. You know, I have a friend who's a a journalist, and she's been traveling all over the country. And, you know, while she's been apparently treated well in in some places by the Taliban, in other places, she might get served tea, but then she has to turn her back to the Taliban because they don't want to see her face. Or she'll be completely covered up except for her sunglasses, and they'll say, you know, we don't want to talk to you because we don't talk to naked women. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have um, actual restrictions um, where um, announcements are being made in towns and districts that women have to wear the burqa. That's the blue tent, basically, you see with the mesh. So you've got mesh in front of your eyes. Not a single bit of your body can be seen. Yeah. So you have those actual restrictions. And then you have areas where there might not be an official pronouncement, but families and the women themselves don't want to go outside because of the fear of what's going to happen and the stories of what's happening to to others. 
you also have the stories about forced marriages, Taliban taking um, young girls as wives. And, you know, it's, it's very hard to know to what extent this is happening, but the situation is bleak. You yeah. have a case now, especially with the women and girls who are in free to run, where they went from being able to run a marathon outside Mm-hmm. to being stuck inside, no educational opportunities, no work opportunities, and no way to leave the country overnight. Overnight. Brutal. And I, I I, don't think any of us can imagine that. We got a tiny, tiny taste of that during COVID. A tiny taste of what it's like to have our yeah. restriction taken away for a week, a month. We can't go to the stores we want to. In France, we're under curfew. Fine. Yeah. But this is on just a, a level. level. And it's different now than it was in the 90s when the Taliban were in power before because they've had that chance. They know what they're missing and they can see it and they can, they know it. And they've mm-hmm. got access to the internet in many cases and they know what they're missing. So what does this mean for free to run? Of course, Running is freedom, right? That's what we all love about it so much. How is this going to impact your organization? Yeah. Um, I mean, really, I think while we were going through the evacuation process, I was also going through, you know, my own grieving process for the organization and for, for the women and for the country. You know, I'm obviously not Afghan, but this is a country that is so close to my heart. Um, and I've obviously become quite invested in in the progress that I've seen. And so right now, still, we are focused on safety and security of those members of our team, those who we can help um, with evacuation, those who've been evacuated, trying to get them out of transit um, situations into more stable, um, more stable homes. But ultimately, we're not going to be able to evacuate everyone. You can't. Yeah. You just can't. And at some point, once we get past this stage, people are going to realize that they can't get up. And I want Free to Run to be there when that moment happens. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be appropriate now to say, ah, let's find ways that we can continue programming because people just want to get up. Yeah. But when that moment happens, I want to be able to be there. And the situation looks impossible right now. It, it really does. Um And people would say, you know, you're crazy if you think that you can continue operating. However, (laughs) to a different degree, people thought I was crazy when I wanted to start this back in 2014 or when I was talking about it in 2012. Mm -hmm. And I just have to believe that there will be openings, that there will be opportunities to support, to continue to support the women and girls who are there either through remote education, ways that, you know, we developed all sorts of remote um, curricula so that they could continue doing exercises in their homes during COVID-19 lockdowns. There are going to be openings and I want to find ways to take advantage of those and then to build on them. And maybe that'll be in six months. Maybe it'll be longer. Maybe mm-hmm. it'll be next month. I don't know. <laughs> Things change badly overnight. Maybe they could go back. Yes. How about that? But, yeah. You know, Optimism. It's, yeah. It's, um, it is, uh, I think what I take away from it is that the model works. You know, we've more than proven the concept that running can do so much more than just individual empowerment. It can drive community change and change 
the views that people have about the roles of women. And we're continuing to do it in Iraq. So we're going to scale up in Iraq. We're going to keep our eye on Afghanistan mm-hmm. <laughs> and continue to obviously support those in, in our family and look to see what other opportunities arise. Um, but so, it's, it's going to depend on funding as well. <laughs> thank you. That's a perfect segue. <laughs> Stephanie, how can our community help? I mean, this is something that is so in line with the core values of trail runners, right? Yeah. Is to create opportunities for women and girls in these places to experience the joy and freedom of being outside and running. And we have a decent sized listenership here and I would love (laughs) to give them an opportunity to support free to run. So in what ways can we support financially or otherwise? Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, I mean, it, it sounds like a simple answer, but one is fundraising. Um, you know, in order to help the evacuation efforts, in order to ensure that those who are evacuated have some kind of dignified process to be able to get to a new home, and in order to, um, yeah, to continue to support our programs in Iraq and look for new opportunities, we need to have the funding. Our main funding came from Afghanistan and, frankly, from the U.S. government, and they have stopped all funding to the country. We're about to get a three-year grant and it's now stopped. And so that's really thrown, you know, actually the viability of our whole organization um, into question. So we launched a fundraiser for $100,000. I think we're up to $62,000. But there is a link on my Instagram. Um, You can donate through our website, through PayPal, super, super easy. Um, And it, I see every donation that comes in and it, it really, including yours. Um, and it, it really, really helps us out to continue to, to support those who really need it most. And one cool way of doing it that we've seen throughout this whole process is we do have an ambassador program and, you know, it's not about being a Dylan Bowman. It's not about being that the highest level people, although we would love to have you. Um, it's, (laughs) It's really about anyone who believes in in our mission and wants to support. And all it involves is committing to raising $1,000 for the organization over the next year. And if you want to raise more, that's great. And, you know, we send you a t-shirt, we send you a buff, and you let us know about what events you're doing. It can be, you know, a 5K, it can be a 50K, it can be a 450K. And we'll share your stories, we'll provide you support, and you can help share our stories. And I think it's a really great way to be connected um, to what we're doing. And it it makes a difference. It, I love, you know, going on social media and seeing people, you know, holding signs, you know, showing visibility and solidarity with Afghan women, um, you know, speaking in their communities, you know, doing whatever they can to to raise awareness about this. And then the other way that you can help is really, you know, when the Afghan refugees come, whether they're from free to run or or anywhere else, and a lot are coming to the U.S., do what you can to to help them feel welcome, um, which the trail community obviously would do. And if you come into contact, anyone who's listening with Afghan refugees who, who need any kind of support on the running side, whether they're men or women, Free to run might not be able to institutionally help, but I will use all my contacts to get them shoes from the North Face or Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Stephanie, you're a hero and I will absolutely 
put the links to these appropriate things in the show notes. Uh, it's free to run.org and I'm looking forward to continuing to support. And I am just so impressed by what you guys do. I think it's such an admirable mission. And I really do hope that those who are listening are similarly inspired and that they can show some support as well. And I love this ambassador idea as well. And of course, being welcoming of those who are, who do have the privilege of being welcomed into the United States as refugees. And I do just want to finally also share that my Uber driver told me that his wife, mother, brother, and sister had all successfully been evacuated. And they are currently oh, in a good. refugee camp in Wisconsin awaiting final medical clearance before they will officially be welcomed into our country. And it was the most powerful Uber ride of my life for sure. And I, uh, I was so struck by, even though this person who went home for his wedding and left under duress and who is driving Ubers to make ends meet and whose family is in a refugee camp, he was the friendliest, gr most gregarious and seemingly happy person. And it just goes to show you that it is the little things. It's your family being safe. It's the fact that you can make some money uh, having a job, even if it might seem boring or entry level or whatever. It's all about, you know, your attitude in those situations. And, and he uh, embodied it, which was pretty special. Well, do you know, I, I mean, I have to say, um, when I left Afghanistan in 2013, the first time, and then I, I was working in South Sudan, you know, living in a tent, living in a camp for internally displaced people. It was terrible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Didn't no mobile signal in the area. And one of the guys that I'd worked with at the UN who'd been relocated to the US because he was formally um, supporting the, the US government before he worked for the UN. So he got a visa on a different round. He messaged me on Facebook. We had internet um, in the humanitarian hub in, in South Sudan for a few hours a day. And he messaged me and he said, you know, I just want to check in and see how you're doing. And I was like, oh, no, I'm doing okay. It's pretty rough. But, you know, we had a good cobble. And uh, he said, well, let me call you. And I said, no, no, I don't. I don't have a mobile signal. He said, well, do you have a sat phone? And I said, yeah, but it's like $20 a minute to call. And he said, give me your sat phone number. He was the only person who called me on my, crazy enough to call me on my sat phone in six months. And, you know, the connections that I have with my Afghan friends, you know, will last, they're, they'll, they'll last forever. So, yeah. oh, I also wanted to say it just on the investor program um, that we particularly welcome people from, um, who identify as being from visible minorities. Mm. Um, and um, the intention is to expand it, to include high level professional athletes who will help to raise awareness who don't necessarily have the fundraising obligation, but um, who are willing to work with us on, on raising um, awareness at a bit of a higher level, yeah. but in general weekend warriors, anyone welcome. Okay, great. So we'll just make sure to include all this stuff in the show notes so that people Thanks. who want to make donations can, and for those who are interested in the ambassadorship can get in touch with the right people on that. Steph, that's an intense way to start our conversation. I know we just spent like 45 <laughs> minutes talking about very intense subject matter, but I, I think it's so important. And people like you are so 
uh, special and, uh, yeah, just like, I don't know how the world operates, uh, without people like you. And so thank you for what you do. And, uh, I'm glad that we could have, uh, share a little bit of time in Chamonix. And, uh, in addition to being a human rights lawyer who does all these incredible things, you're also a fantastic athlete. And I feel like on the first episode, we didn't do a proper justice to that side of your life. And I want to make sure that we do that now. And one of the things that you were also preparing for in the midst of this brutal period of your life that happened to coincide with the UTMB when you and I had our interaction, <laughs> you were deep in your, uh, your training for the Tour de Glacier, a 450 kilometer race. That's part of Tour de Jantz. So it's basically like the XXL version of Tour de Jantz, which is already an astounding, enormous undertaking on its own. And Tour de Glacier is for those who find Tour de Jantz to be too short and too easy. So 400... it is fun to call it the short race now. <laughs> <laughs> so 450 Ks with 32,000 meters of climbing. So that's 280 miles with 105,000 feet of climbing in a single and The push. actual count is actually 37,000 meters. The race provides like a spreadsheet with cumulative elevation and it's 37,000. So, <laughs> so it's actually more like what? 125, 130,000 yeah, like feet of climbing. That's it's like, nuts. that's like a third or a quarter of what I do an entire year. You did in a single push. <laughs> and it's self-navigated, which is the big kicker. So, well, let's talk all about this stuff. Well, first yeah. of all, you're a four-time finisher of Tour de Jantz, right? Yeah. So how does this course compare to Tour de Jantz? And also, I, I'm just to connect the two things that we're talking about now, like how did this situation with Afghanistan Afghanistan uh, sort of impact your preparation for Tour de Glossier? And was there any moment when you uh, you thought you weren't going to make it to the start line based on everything you were dealing with? Yeah. Um, well, basically, I hadn't taken any vacation in pretty much all of 2020. And I'd worked the last three Christmases and I'd saved up all this annual leave. And this was going to be my well, 2020 was going to be my big summer of training for Tour de Glacier. And then, of course, COVID happened. So I had um, a block of time, about a month, and then another couple of weeks set off in, in the summer just to train. But with everything that happened with Afghanistan, I ended up using a lot of my holiday from my UN job to travel to Afghanistan um, and then to coordinate evacuations. and. The time when I was off and meant to be training, um, during that evacuation period, I, I couldn't be out of signal. I couldn't be mm. anywhere that my phone couldn't receive a message. So for the most part, I was stuck to my computer at my at my kitchen table. I got in a, you know, a few short runs in the dark at night when when people were sleeping in Afghanistan. But the times when I tried to get a couple of runs in during the day. Um, I ran with my laptop in one case and I would basically run up until I was at a signal and then I would just run straight back down. And I was sending spreadsheets and evacuation lists from the side of the trail. And, you know, but what I, what I found was that my brain just wasn't in it. 
Yeah. You know, if you, even when the evacuation was over and I had a weekend and I'm like, okay, you know, now you can really, you can really go for it. And I'd planned to go stay at this refuge and I just got halfway up and I'm like, I can't do it. I just couldn't do it. My, my heart wasn't in it. It felt selfish. It felt totally indulgent. And it was just, I was in this space of like, you know, what does this matter? <laughs> Why am yeah. I training to run 450K when, you know, I was still receiving messages um, on social media, on email, on LinkedIn, on everything from any Afghan who was connected to me at all, which is fair. It's exactly what I would have done if I was an Afghan, but to be bombarded with these messages all the time and to feel completely helpless, knowing that you had helped some people and you couldn't help others. You felt like you'd basically just played God and then you were playing the devil. Mm. So and, it's hard and, to run when you have that kind of hanging around. Yeah. So were you, were you ever on the fence about whether you would take the start line, given what you were dealing with in your professional life? No. No, I, I knew, I knew I had to do the race and I knew it could help bring some awareness to free to run. And we have a little film hopefully coming out yes. <laughs> with the North Face on it. Yes. So, you know, we, we had, I had that element, which, which is good and bad. You know, I had, I had filmmakers that were counting on me to to run this race. So not only did I have to run it, but like the, you know, there was no option for me to like roll an ankle or drop out or <laughs> I had to finish. You're and I had to finish well because this is, this is about women's empowerment. Like no one wants to come last. It's the, the perfect <laughs> incentive. It's the, the carrot, <laughs> the carrot and the stick mentality. It's like, you know, you're setting out for 450 K is uh, what can you do to motivate yourself when you want to quit? Well, they're making a movie about me. <laughs> so, I, so, so explain a little bit about the race and how it compares to Tour de Jean's. I know one yeah. of the things that makes it interesting is that it's self-navigated where Tour de Jean's yeah. is is actually properly marked and flagged. Well, I, I really thought that Tour de Jean was the, you know, hardest race that you could possibly do. I mean, I have, I've, yeah, like you said, I've done it four times. I usually, I've done it twice in 98 hours and 15 minutes, give or take a couple of minutes. <laughs> My worst time is 104 hours, I think. But, you know, and I was just destroyed. And, you know, you get to the end and you're like, oh, I can't take another step. Like how we all feel at the end of any big race we do. But Tour de Glacier just blew this out of the water. And so I think what makes it quite different, obviously the length, but the self-navigation aspect is massive. And okay, I've done the Barkley. Barkley's hard. You've got your own map. You've got a compass. You're allowed GPS in, in this race. So let's not get crazy. Mm -hmm. But your ability to understand... <laughs> GPS when you haven't slept in a week is really, really tough. I mean, there was one point, it was a checkpoint, um, Hotel Italia. I think it's about 40K from the finish. <laughs> and, you know, there were a couple of guys behind me who had been behind me the whole race, never more than about six and a half hours. And at this point, the last time they we tracked them, they were like an hour and 45 minutes behind me. And I was like, mm. ah, crap. 
Because and you're so competing against these guys. I was competing against these yeah. guys, you we'll know? Get to that. And, and so I come into this checkpoint, you know, at, at 40K, 40K left to go. So at 410K. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, we're going to do this in 15 minutes. And I run in like it's, you know, a 100K race. And I'm like, let's go. And I'm like shoving food in my mouth. And I'm like, go, 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 go. <laughs> and then I run out and there's like three, five cameras on me, all with their lights. And it was like tour media, local media, my own film crew. And I was like, yeah. And then I look at my, <laughs> my GPS and I'm like, I don't know where to go. Oh, <laughs> and they're no. all just staring at me. And I'm like, where did I come from? And they're like, well, Great Supernard Pass is that way. And I'm like, that doesn't tell me anything. <laughs> and then I like ran a little bit. And then I ran back a little bit. And luckily the winner of the race had come out to the checkpoint to see me. And so someone went inside to grab him and he ran out. He's like, go this way. <laughs> I was like, I can't understand anything. So what were you using to navigate? Did you have like your cell phone with guy on it? Yeah. Or? yeah. Yeah, I had my yeah, cell phone with Guy on it. And I then definitely I had know my watch that as a backup. You can be like when you're tired and you're looking at your guy, you're like, I can't tell. Like, <laughs> do I go right here? Like, which way's north? I don't get it. I, I can't imagine after anything. six days. Yeah. And I was just, I felt so stupid because they're all like watching me and then they're trying to interview me. And I was like, I can't talk right yeah. now. <laughs> so aside from the extra distance and the right. self-navigation component, is there anything that stands out to you that makes it different yeah. or more challenging than the tour, which you've done four yeah, times? The terrain, like the lack of trail. So, you know, I used to think that toward a, had gnarly trails and they do like very yeah. technical very technical gnarly trails but Tour de Glacier doesn't have trails in many parts and there were four parts of the trail that I'd listed on my excel spreadsheet for my crew I just highlighted in red as danger <laughs> like, uh -huh. these are the parts where I might need a helicopter and um in these places yeah there's no no defined trail and really no super safe or obvious way to get down. So they'd actually placed mountain guides on the tops of three coals. One of them um, who would be there to put a harness on people and help belay them down, um, which I didn't get offered. Apparently I looked too confident, wow. which I need to Did work on guy, next time. <laughs> whoever was doing that probably had to sit around for hours and hours and hours yeah, between he, people. He was in a... He was in a uh, a sleeping bag when I came up and he just popped his head out and he was like, Ale, Ale, Ale. <laughs> um, but European the mountain the, culture is so cool. <laughs> the talks was... to the other ones, you know, I'm like hiking up in the middle of the night and it was of course always in the middle of the night and I get to the top and I'm like, uh, do you have any advice? And he was like, okay, maybe go left, take a sharp right, but then stick to the left. And I was like, what? <laughs> Like, is, does, does he understand English? Like, yeah. sharp right, but go left. Let's stay left, like, yeah. Yeah. And then the other guy, I was like, any advice? And he goes, no. Like, okay. <laughs> Thanks like, for your honesty. So you're, just, you're just here to watch me. Like, and, you know, we're talking like ice. You're going beside glaciers, big boulders. And you, you don't really know where to go. And so you can crawl over these boulders and go through these holes. And then you're suddenly on like a you know, 
cliff yeah. face and you're like, oh shit. So it can take hours to get down, you know, just like a couple of kilometers. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I've, I've never broken a pole in 13 years of ultra running and I broke two, three, two. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And ripped the the whole ass out of my tights on the first night, which was nice. Right? Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So talk a little bit about because it took you ultimately 155 mother bleeping hours to get through and this six minutes and six <laughs> minutes to get through the Tour de Glacier, 450k, 37,000 meters of climbing. So like 280 miles and like 130,000 feet of climbing. We'll just say. And, uh, I know obviously that's, that's a difficult thing to get through. It's going to make anybody tired, particularly if they're not really sleeping comfortably. And I know you basically didn't sleep throughout the entirety of the event. (laughs) How do you manage that strategically? Like you're sort of a, I don't know, like you're one of the best seemingly at these multi-day, you know, 200 plus mile pushes how do you manage the the sleep component of them well first i think as we just have to clarify i can only be classified as one of the best because so many women are doing them <laughs> and that's the whole point you yeah. know it's very strategic on my part just enter races that no one else is entering and then you're automatically good but um no seriously the the sleep deprivation is is the hardest thing about the whole race. I mean, once I finished the race, I had no problems with my muscles. My feet were another issue, but like I had no muscle soreness. My muscles were fine, but to stay awake, I got, we figure about four hours, maybe four to five hours of sleep across the entire race. So that's six and a half days in six and a half days. Yeah. Yeah. And they make it hard because they start the race on Friday night. So you're already starting not having slept for for a while and so how do you do that are you like were you legit moving the whole time basically yeah I mean it didn't look like I was moving very fast but um my longest sleep was an hour and 15 minutes and is that at a a checkpoint type thing yeah at a refuge so whereas in you have five life bases where you get access to a bag and you have a bed and da, da, da. there's only three in Tour de Glacier. So you're spending most of the time just up high mm-hmm. and your checkpoints are, are mainly refuges. So if you have crew, they have to be willing to climb up a thousand meters in the middle of the night and meet you at a, at a refuge. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of these refuges, I should say, actually, the food situation was also really difficult because like in the first 20 hours, we only had two refuges that were serving us food. And that's crazy. Yeah. Because food is the main thing you have to use, I have to use to keep yourself awake. You're, and alive. Not work. <laughs> and, and alive. alive. Yes. But like, you cannot possibly get enough food in. I mean, I was eating packets of butter. I was eating, um, yeah, McDonald's when my crew could bring me McDonald's. Yeah. But um, just as fatty and heavy foods as possible. I was carrying bags of bacon, of cooked bacon with me. And I would just eat, and I don't normally eat bacon, but I was just eating strips of bacon as fuel on the trail. Once I even carried a whole carton of lasagna from one of the refuges, just so I could have something to eat. Because 
yeah, without, without the food, you just fall asleep. So I would use food. I'd use podcasts, including yours, um, to try to keep me awake. And then some like more racy podcasts. Um, so like, yeah, there's like one... murder, murder mystery stuff or what? True crime. No, no. There's one called, um, my dad wrote a porno. <laughs> oh my gosh. It is, it's so good. It's is by it? this comedian. Yeah. Yeah. Whose dad legit wrote like an amateur pornography book and it's <laughs> terrible. And he just reads it aloud and like roasts it with his friends. And I listened to like two whole seasons through the nights because they're just so funny. I can't repeat any of it on here, but I highly recommend it. Um yeah, and you know, every once in a while you're you're not officially allowed to sleep on the trail, but they say you're allowed like micro naps. So mm-hmm. I would just sit down. Or you just put, you know, your hands on your poles and I would sleep for, you know, maybe a minute or two. Yeah. And that would be enough to kind of keep me going. But there were times when you are sleep running. I mean, mm-hmm. your brain is is legitimately off and you just kind of wake up and you're like, how long have I been standing here? Have I been yeah. moving? <laughs> Where am I? Um, so some, since- of the, some of the spots were so scary, like Via Ferrata, you know, you're going on exposed ridge lines and you're climbing and there's ropes and you can't be asleep yeah <laughs> yeah seems dangerous so it does <laughs> skipping ahead a little bit doing 280 miles over six and a half days with four yeah. hours of sleep how did how did you feel afterwards were you completely smashed i mean have you been sleeping non-stop for the last month yeah well um again you know when you finish a race like that and you say uh, i can't walk another step i actually couldn't like i finished i took off my shoes and then my boyfriend had to piggyback me for the next 24 hours i could not walk <laughs> my the pain the nerve pain in my feet was so extreme. I mean, there was, he had to carry me to the bathroom. I mean, they were so sensitive that, you know, even when I, like, I I couldn't have a shower. I just had to be like put into the bathtub. And then he took like, you know, the handle thing and just sprayed me. And I had to keep my feet out because even the water on my feet was too, was too sensitive. Um, I took like a couple hour nap and then I woke up and everyone was gone. And I was like, someone come get me. And we called it the man taxi or the, the maxi. So I called for a maxi. The man he, taxi. <laughs> he picked me up and took me to the bar. And and then I stayed awake through dinner. I was a bit, I was a bit emotional and yeah. kind of all over the place, but um, it was a bit too painful to But to compared sleep. to like a normal hundred miler, what is the recovery yeah. like after something like this? You know, it really... <sighs> It's much better than you'd think it would be. I mean, I I took a full week off, but then I started running like little bits. I've been running like seven to 10K, like three, four times a week. So, you know, it's like my muscles are totally fine. It's just, I still don't have feeling in my toes and I'm just really tired. Yeah. But um, yeah, I was carrying around a lot of extra water weight and inflammation. And I think I must have just put on muscle during the race because mm. I'm a full 10 pounds heavier than when mm. I started the race. So I feel ultimately I'm going to come out of this stronger. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, you just, you just feel, you, you just feel exhausted. Um, but the one feeling that's interesting as well is that, you know, in the past, when I finished really big races, I've been like, Oh God, I'm done running. Like that's it for my season. And all I want to do is go back out in the mountains and specifically back out onto the course. Like if I could be, if I could just go do it again, like now by myself in my own time, I would, I would go in a second. Incredible. Yeah. Is there anybody else who's done four tour de chance and at least one tour de Glossier? Uh, yeah, Marina. Um, I'm going to get her last name wrong. Plavin. She's, we've been on the podium together on tour de Géant, and she's, this was her second time doing tour de Glossier. She's incredible. Wow. She's an absolutely amazing woman. And she just, I just saw a photo of her finishing, um, there was some kind of plogging championship. So she was at the finish line holding two big bags of garbage. You know, plogging is when yeah, you yeah. like jog and pick up garbage. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> She's incredible. She's any, so strong. Any men that have done it or are you the only two? There's definitely guys that have done Tour de Géant a few times. I don't think there's... I don't know. I don't think there's anyone that maybe has finished four times. You're you're like an icon of the race. It must be pretty cool. (laughs) So going back to the race itself though, because we haven't quite done it justice. You talked a little bit before about the competitive spirit that you found late in the race when you thought you were getting chased down by some guys behind you. Oh, it was always there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But there was a couple of guys ahead of you too. So ultimately you finished third place overall. First, first woman, obviously. So I don't know. And those guys finished together and they, if I'm not mistaken, they ran the whole race together. Didn't they? The first two guys. Most of the race. Yeah. It was, I think on the second day that they hooked up together and then, and then they just carried on. Yeah. And you were in complete (laughs) solitude. So talk a little bit about this. I mean, it's a theme of the whole year too. I feel like one of the stories (laughs) of the year in ultra running is like at Western States, 15 of the top 30 were women at UTMB. Courtney DeWalter finished seventh overall Yeah. at Tour de Glossier. You were third overall competing against the top men. Talk about just the competitive side of the race itself, how you were thinking about it. And uh, yeah, yeah the, 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 the solitude that you enjoyed it with versus the, the people who beat you, who, who teamed up and uh, probably yeah. were able to move a little bit quicker as a result. Well, my A goal in the race was to be fifth male. <laughs> I wanted to be, because the, the podium at Tour is top five. And so I wanted to be, male podium. <laughs> yes. Um, but you know, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to get it. This is, you know, outside of the realm of possibility, but I just wanted it to be my goal because I knew that there were only going to be, you know, three or four women. And in the end there were only three and only two of us finished. So, you know, I wanted to compete against the men Yeah. and, you know, from quite early on, I was running up at the front and normally I would think like, Oh, I'm running too fast. I felt so good. And I was like, why is everyone running so slowly? <laughs> it yeah. sounded so arrogant, but I'm like, I don't think I'm moving too quickly. You know, I never threw up. I wasn't pushing myself that hard. And, you know, there I was at the top, I was in second for like a good chunk of the first 24 hours. And I'm like, this is crazy. 
but I was always kind of waiting for it to, you know, to, to end. But normally I start off races slower than others. And then I, I catch up. So I'm like, hmm, you know, maybe there's something interesting we could, we could do here. And for a while I was staying about two hours behind the front two guys. And I wanted to stay there. And I don't know at what point it happened, but at some point I finished like a day behind them. So I have I have some work to do. I think it was the sleep issue. Yeah. Um but for me, you know, it was kind of I I think it would have been a very different race to race with someone else. And that's actually what Luca Papi um who won in 2019, that's what he said because he did the 2019 race by himself and it just completely changes the dynamic because you have someone else to navigate with you have someone else to keep you awake you mm. you're sharing experiences and I think there's a lot of really amazing things that come out of that and you know and some part of me wishes like wow that would have been so cool if I'd had that as well but then there's a bit of like maybe egotistical pride that like I I did this myself you know yeah. every mistake I made was mine every thing I did right was mine and to be able to be alone moving through the mountains awake for like six and a half days like you know and you're just in the space between like reality and like nightmare and dream mm -hmm. <laughs> um you know I'll, I don't know if I'll ever have that experience again so I, powerful. Yeah. I loved it. I yeah. loved it. And nobody will ever understand it except for you, <laughs> which is the great thing about it. So yeah. also I have to ask you, because I've heard about this from a couple of different people that you were attacked by a donkey at some point. Yeah. In the race. yeah. Tell, tell that story. Yeah. I mean, there's like a lot of humor that can come out of it, a lot of jokes like, Oh, what an ass. Ha ha ha. But um, I have to say at the time, it, it was truly, it was truly terrifying. So I have a bit of a history with, um, getting attacked by, by animals. I did Valderam by UTMB in July. And in the first 5k, a deer, apparently the size of horse came and whacked me in the head, um, <laughs> right in the, in the race. And so we had joked like with a, before, with a, with a hoof or something. No, like the side of it, like it's, it's body. Like my head was leaning forward. I was going like this. I didn't even know what happened. And it hit me here. Like half a foot forward. I'd be in the hospital. I mean, it was bad. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was bad. Um, and so we joked before, um, Tony Glacier, like, Oh, stay away from the deer. But we never expected to be a donkey. So I was coming up to a refuge. It was maybe around 200K. And um, Carrie, one of the filmmakers, was there with her camera and just filming me coming up to the refuge. And there was a, a donkey. And it kind of came up beside me and was like nudging me a bit. And I just thought it was, you know, being like a cute little animal. And I was kind of talking to it. And it went from being a cute little animal to like terrifying within about five seconds. So it basically pushed me over and I was on the ground on my stomach and its whole body weight was on top of me. And so I'm freaking out thinking that I'm going to be crushed. I'm going to be crushed to death, death by a donkey 
in the middle of a race and like, you know, I could feel the compression on my ribs and I'm like having trouble breathing. I could feel its hooves. And then it started biting my head and biting my neck. And I'm like screaming and <laughs> Carrie drops the camera, runs over, jumps on top of the donkey and is punching it in the head trying to get it off me. And we're both hysterical. I, it's the, she got the donkey off of me. I start running up. I've got like massive bruise on my arm, massive bruise on my leg. My pole's broken. My hair's out everywhere from the, and like Carrie thought I was bleeding from the head. I wasn't, but it was it's like, I just, I couldn't even process what had happened because I really thought I was going to get killed by a donkey. And, um, you know, it's, this is like the disturbing part of it, but I was explaining to them after. And I said, look, I've never been like, you know, sexually assaulted, but like, it's kind of what it felt like because I was like being overpowered by like a larger animal and I felt like I had no control. And yeah, apparently the donkey had a giant erection. So apparently I was looking like a female donkey in a race oh. which you know is just disturbing he was confused so he was very times. confused oh my I have god so much empathy for female donkeys now. speaking of porno podcasts <laughs> geez i didn't know we were going there i know uh, no it was horrible and so uh, I, I i basically left the refuge in a panic attack with one pole holding my arm just sobbing just sobbing and it took me until I got to the top of the climb. Cause I still had, you know, 250 yeah. more K to do. <laughs> yeah. It's early. Yeah. Uh, um, was this caught on camera? Um, so apparently you can see the erection on camera. Oh my god. And you can hear my screams. So yeah, we'll see what's going to be into part the of the movie. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> We're going to need Sony disclaimers yeah. and trigger warnings. <laughs> you guys are going to be going on tour, I think, with this film, probably. I know. So it's terrible. Uh, to go from, you know, somewhat humorous uh, content to sort of wrap things up, Stephanie, this was a pretty freaking cool achievement for you, especially considering the circumstances of your life at the time and what you were dealing with your, with your professional life and with your friends and, uh, yeah. you know, your organization in Afghanistan, was it meditative at all? Were you able to sort of process things while you were out on the trail and in retrospect, what value have you found in this huge undertaking at Tour de Glossier? Yeah, I think, you know, I'd been, I've been looking forward to this race for so long since they announced it in 2018 and then I didn't get in in 2019. And then we had COVID in 2020 that, you know, it had, it had been, you know, this huge goal of mine, but also I was, I was terrified. I was terrified of, of failing something that, you know, I just knew that I could nail. Um, and so before the race, I was, I was a mess. I was just, there's this photo of me in black and white where you can just see the look on my face. Like, but once I started running, um, all of the stress that I'd had and all the worries that I had were just gone because I just gave myself permission for one week to not answer emails, 
not answer messages. And it took me a bit of time to get there. I, cause I still did have this feeling of, you know, of just guilt and selfishness and self-indulgence and, mm-hmm. you know, all of these feelings. But I just knew in order for me to actually come back able to do more work and to be a bit more refreshed to take this one week where I could just focus on something so simple as moving forward that it would do me a, a world of good. And it, and it did. And I, 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 that's why I just want more. I just want to go back. And, you know, like we all do when the race ended, I said, Oh God, that was so hard. It was a one-time thing. I'm never doing it again. And then like five days later, I'm like, oh, I want yeah. to do it again. You know, I, I, I came away from it. Um, Every time I do an ultra and I do well, it's, it's still a surprise. I'm not a professional athlete. I'm not, I'm not a good athlete. I just, yeah, I pick events that, that there aren't that many women in. So objectively it looks like, it looks like I, you know, I know what I'm doing. And, but as I said before, you know, it'd be my dream to not be doing well because there's so many other good women in the, in these races. So for me to come through this and actually compete at the same level as men, even though I was a day behind, um, it's, it's a huge reminder to me that we're constantly undervaluing our potential Mm. and we, there's, we give ourselves so many reasons why we shouldn't be striving for higher goals because we're worried about failing or, you know, we don't want to look like we're crazy, but yeah, you know, maybe, maybe we do need to just set those higher goals. We don't necessarily need to tell other people if we don't want to, but I think we need to give ourselves permission to do better than we think we can. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Well, Stephanie, you're an inspiration to me. You are somebody who I have always really enjoyed following. You do such great things for the sport, but you also do great things for the world. And uh, I've always, or I've been interested in chatting with you about the Afghanistan thing since it was in the news. And when I saw you in Chamonix, um, but, you know, thank you for coming on and helping to educate us a little bit more in the community about what's happening in places that aren't quite as privileged and comfortable uh, as our home countries. And uh, thank you for being out there on the front lines, looking after people who really do need the privilege and joy of running in their lives and who don't necessarily have that opportunity as much as we do. And thanks for coming back on the podcast for a second time. It's so fun to chat with you. Thanks for inviting me. I hope I can give you a better um, welcome next time you come to Shaman. Congrats on the Western States board and, you know, everything that you're achieving. And because um, I know you're hesitant to to do this, I'm going to make a plug to everyone to support (laughs) you through Patreon and support your podcast and support what you're doing. Because, you know, when you put your whole heart and soul into these things, um, you can't go wrong. So I think as a member of the community, we all have an obligation to support what you're doing for us. Oh, what a nice, what a nice thing for you to say. Well, Stephanie, it's always a joy to chat with you. Good luck with everything. And uh, I do encourage everybody also to support what you're doing and uh, visit the show notes for ways that you can do it. Stephanie, people are going to be broke. 
after this call. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, cough it up. Yeah, no. Well, um, yeah, thanks again, Steph. Let's catch up again soon. Okay. Thank you, Stephanie. How inspiring is she, right? The world needs more Stephanie's and I'm so honored to call her a friend. I'm so grateful she'd take time out of her busy schedule, saving the world to come on the show for a second time. And guys, if you listen to this and you found it inspiring, please do take some action. Go drop a donation of any size, large or small on the free to run website. It is free to run org forward slash donate. I have a link right here in the show notes to make it easy. No excuses. Think about all the value that running has provided to you in your lives and do what you can to pay that gift forward to the women of Afghanistan who don't have that same freedom or opportunity. And also, if you're keen to learn more about the ambassador program that Stephanie described, I have a link to that in the show notes as well. Or you can hit up Stephanie on Instagram, where I am sure she would love to connect with you. But that's it for this week. I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your week. Please do take care of yourselves. Thank you so much for being here and listening all the way to the end my deepest appreciation. Love you guys so much. Bye-bye.